So we're recording this on the afternoon of Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. Uh, so that means we recorded it on Groundhog's Day. It's sunny outside today. Six more weeks of winter, although I did see a meme today where the rodent is looking up at the heavens saying, I'm a rodent, not a, not a meteorologist. That's probably true. Also happening here today at uh, the Cross Life Campus of Unity Lutheran Church is a blood drive. Uh, thanks very much to all the people who, who are giving today. I think we're going to end up with about 40 donors. Uh, so we easily met kind of our goal of 25, which is really cool. Uh, so thanks to everybody who's giving and is a part of that. Now we should talk about the sermon a little bit, hey? Uh, so I started thinking about sermons for whatever reason. I, I started thinking to myself, how many sermons have I given at Cross of Life and Unity Lutheran Church? And, you know, I've been a pastor here by myself with one other person, two other people, three other pastors at a time, depending on uh, what circumstance we were in. But I decided ultimately I must, I must do about 30 sermons a year for weekends, uh, Lent Wednesdays, Holy Week, Christmas Eve, weddings, funerals, other special services, maybe 30, 30 a year times 26 years. That's 780 sermons. What could I possibly have left to say? Every pastor always has one more sermon in them. So here's, here's my one more. Uh, I think a lot of preaching press professors would actually disagree with that. There's no way you've done 780 sermons. They would say each pastor has about seven or eight sermons. In other words, you have some standard themes that you kind of uh, stick to and emphasize, and you just kind of find different ways to express them over and over again. I, I think that's fairly true. I think everybody has their primary themes. I think I've got eight. Uh, if you know me fairly well, you can be sitting there thinking of your own list. What does John talk about all the time? Uh, here's, here's how I thought it was, and you can, you'll see these on your screen. So here are my eight principal themes, I think. Uh, one, God wants us to serve others, and this will involve some sacrifice. Two, God wants us to try and change things in our world that make life hard for the least of our brothers and sisters. Three, God wants us to make peace in our world and in our relationships. Four, God wants us to include and invite. Five, God wants us to accept the grace that God offers us. Six, God brings light into the darkness and wants us to shine. Seven, in Jesus, God teaches us that life's a journey and we all live on the road. And finally, number eight, God surprises us all the time and the best surprises are good news of great joy. How does that sound? Does that sound like a fairly comprehensive list of John sermons? Now, here's my one more that I've got for you, at least to this week. Next time I have a chance to preach, you know I'll find another one, as will Sherry, as will Muriel. Um, and by the way, I should thank Dave Patterson one more time. I'm so appreciative of David Patterson uh, for filling in for Muriel while she is on sabbatical. Dave's a member of this congregation, has, has offered his time freely to us, which is this amazing gift, and, and just as a, as a good preacher and, and uh, a good person for us to hear the good news from. So thank you so much to David Patterson. But anyhow, let, let's, let's do today's sermon, and uh, this week, like last, we're going to focus on the first lesson. Last week, it was from the prophet Micah. This week, it's from the prophet Isaiah. And to briefly review the prophets in the Old Testament, 
are the social and religious and political critics of their world. In other words, they spoke to the king, to the people, or to the priests, a word of challenge because things weren't going so well. And as you might imagine, as a result, the prophets were not always very popular people because people then and now don't like being challenged all that much. But we have retained their words for centuries and centuries because in retrospect, most of the time, those prophets were onto something. So this week, we're taking a look at uh, the prophet Isaiah. As we've said, the prophet Isaiah is the one that Jesus and the Gospels quote the most. Uh, Isaiah is most influential in uh, Jesus' approach to ministry. You see that from the very beginning when he's in his hometown of Nazareth and he's asked to read from the temple scrolls. He reads from the prophet Isaiah. And that establishes themes for his entire ministry to come. So what what should you know in particular about Isaiah, given how important Isaiah is? Uh, You should know that it's a book written over a 200-year period, and so obviously has more than one author, but what's really spirit-driven about it is that you, you can't really sense that. There is an amazing kind of unanimity of perspective that runs through the entire book. And so the book begins when things are still going well in the country of Israel, and, and that first part of the book is, is a challenge for the most part to the people of Israel, uh, saying you're, you're off base, there is immorality, there is abuse of the poor by the rich, uh, there is idolatry of, of other gods, this isn't going to turn out well if you keep doing this. And, and God asks for a mouthpiece and the prophet Isaiah steps forward in this, this poetic court scene and says, here I am, I'll speak for you. Um, it's, it's beautiful and powerful. But the people don't listen. Bad things do happen, not because God causes them, but just when we, when we get out of balance, things stay out of balance, and that's what happens to Israel. And so many of the people get uh, hauled into exile in Babylon, and you would think there might have been a tendency then for the prophet to say, see, I told you so. Uh, you should have cleaned up your act, and now, now, now you're stuck. But that second part of Isaiah doesn't begin that way. It begins with the words, comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Ours is a God who doesn't uh, push us down further when when we're down. God does not enjoy being right. Uh, God does not uh, seek retribution. God is a God of comfort. Comfort my people, says our God. And then the whole rest of that part of the book tries to help the people make sense of is there anything good that can come out of all of this suffering. And then the third part of the book is the part that today's uh, lesson came from. It's when the people are back from exile. They're back in in a homeland they actually had never seen. You know, generations have passed. And again, bad things start happening. Uh, uh, Bosses physically abuse their their workers. The the poor aren't fed. The homeless stay homeless. Uh, Those with little continue to have little. And, and, And it's all out of balance again. And you might think, now finally God has lost patience with the people and he'll kind of bring down the hammer, but, but no. Instead, it's, there's this sense that God will be in front of you as your defender and vindication. God will be your rear guard and God will be this amazing light and you too will be able to shine. It is a book of resolute um, hopefulness in the face of our own mistakes and hurtfulness. And this then becomes Jesus the Christ. 
the one who comes with unconditional love for a sinful world and showers it with amazing, amazing grace. So, you know, any sermon takes, you know, the history of our faith, its struggles and its weaknesses and also its great strengths and then tries to relate them to what's going on in in our world today. So last week, as you may recall, we spent a little time talking about a a situation that came up in the Brookfield City Council. This week I thought, yeah, let's keep it local. Let's talk a little bit about something going on in the Elmbrook School District. So there is a primary election coming up this week. And uh, I have no endorsements or favorites, but uh, do have some observations, two observations. So the first observation, so the candidates were interviewed and their comments were in the local paper. And, and I, I noticed that all three are, are businessmen and they made a big deal about how their business experience qualifies them to be on the school board. And I thought about that a little bit. I thought, well, maybe, you know, business experience can certainly help with the operations of a, a large district. Um, might be able to help with HR issues, budget issues. Uh, but well, I, don't, I don't know that running a business necessarily equates to, we've all been students, but we haven't all been teachers. Um, and I don't know that understanding education necessarily comes from a business background. And then I started thinking, well, for example, uh, I don't know that running a business immediately helps you react to a situation where, say, you're a teacher in your first grade classroom. Kids come in from recess. A little kid comes up to you and says, I don't feel very well, and then proceeds to, like, throw up all over your desk. Um, I know you can all kind of picture that a little bit. You probably don't want to picture it for too long, but in that moment, what does that teacher have to do? That teacher has to hopefully comfort that kid a little bit, um, uh, get some help in cleaning things up, uh, deal with all of those other kids who are sitting out there, some of whom are probably laughing, some of whom are grossed out, some of whom are now suddenly feeling a little queasy themselves, and then get back to a learning environment, preferably in like five minutes or less. That takes a particular personality and skill set, right? Uh, by the way, that isn't a made-up story. Uh, the, the kid throwing up on the desk would be John Eibler many, many years ago. Thanks be to God for Miss Finking, my first grade teacher, who, who just watched that all happen and just smiled at me and said, oh, it's okay, you'll feel better. And she handled it very, very nicely. Ah, Miss Finking, I still love you. Um, so anyhow, uh, I, so I kind of had that reaction. And then the other thing I kind of reacted to was at least one and, and two of the candidates, I think, kind of really stressed that, that parents really need to have the, be able to own and kind of almost direct what's going on in their children's education. I thought to myself, is that a good idea? Because uh, that means if there are like 25 kids in a classroom, that means every teacher is going to have like 50 bosses. And I'm not sure that's going to turn out uh, very well. Not that parents shouldn't have some uh, input, but I think they should have input at a high level. Uh, I don't know that we need them running day-to-day matters in any given classroom. I'm, I'm totally okay letting uh, the educational professionals do that. Uh, And we've got a lot of educational professionals in our congregation who have been super challenged over the last couple of years and are increasingly challenged by by people who are frequently really critical of of the work that they do. Um, 
I feel for, for teachers. I also feel um, in our time and place for uh, police officers. I think they're almost in kind of the same situation where we increasingly ask them to do more and more things uh, as our society struggles with stuff and, and it becomes a distraction and an enormous source of stress and anxiety and frequently distracts them from doing what they most set out to do in their particular career and calling. And, and ultimately, um, ultimately exhausts them rather than feeds them. Now, what does this all have to do with Isaiah? Uh, I think it has a ton to do with Isaiah. When you think back to Greg reading that, uh, again, remember Isaiah was really concerned about the health of the community uh, because people were, were, were literally being violent to each other and, and they were ignoring each other's needs. And at some level, that's just a basic disrespect and, and lack of common dignity. Uh, that's never good for a community. But, but you can't let communities just uh, never be challenged either, right? I mean, that, that was the role of the prophets. So I, I think what Isaiah, when, when he ultimately talks about God's light in our lives, is, is he's super aware that the communities are healthy when they're kind of imbalanced. And, and when we get really angry with each other and, and really um, disregard each other, the community gets knocked out of balance. And, and that's, not, no, that's not challenging, something that maybe needs to be changed or to thought about. That's, that's, just like, that's just hitting it at some level. And, and the role then of the faith community is what? Is to be light in the midst of that, uh, which is to help the community reestablish balance. It's to say no. Uh, to, to putting people down and to, to yelling at each other and instead to say, hey, um, we all care about stuff. It's important. We need to listen to each other. But nobody gets everything they want and everybody has to leave some space for others to exist in the same environment. That, after all, is the very definition of balance. And in this society, in this community, when we remember that, um, we can do amazing things. Uh, there is amazing light in this place. So I think one of the things for us to work on in you know, the primary election, in our daily relationships, in our workplaces, in our educational places, is, is to, to resist the, the forces of imbalance um, that would create lack of dignity and respect, and to encourage the parts of the community that rightly challenge and, and, and seek change and growth, but, but do it in a way that is truly a collaboration. Those are all a lot of words. Everybody says, oh, well, that sounds really good, but that's really hard to do. Yeah, it is really hard to do, but it is exactly what we need to do as the people of God. It is our blessing to share with the world. So we pray about it, and we keep working at it, and we don't always get it right. I, I guess to leave you with two images, um, when I think of any classroom I've been in or any classroom that exists nowadays, uh, it's just filled with people, right? It's filled with a teacher who brings their expertise, but also their, their warts and blemishes into the classroom. They bring whatever's going on in their life into the classroom. And then you've got maybe 24 kids sitting there in that classroom. And on any given day, four of those kids were sick the day before and they're trying to catch up. And four of those kids are bored no matter what you're talking about. And four of those kids are totally engaged maybe no matter what you're talking about. And, and, and four of those kids are angry or they're afraid because their parents were fighting when they left the house this morning. And, and, and four of those kids, um, 
Four of those kids have some sort of special need on that day or maybe always, and maybe they're not even sure that anyone else besides them is aware of that. And, and four of them are just dreaming in class. They're dreaming of the game they're going to play that night, a video game, a sports game, a relationship game. And that can describe a classroom, right, from anywhere from fourth grade up to 16th grade. And in the midst of all of those people, then, you, you pray for, for balance and you pray for goodwill and you pray for lots of support from the outside and lots of grace from the inside. So um, we're all kind of in a classroom together, right? And we're on the journey of life and we've got so much to learn, so much to teach. So be a good student this week. Be a good teacher, too. And the other thing is, remember where you live. And you know where you live, right? I mean, everybody lives someplace, but where we all as people of faith live, we all live on a hill. The Sermon on the Mount today, right? A city set on a hill can't be hid. Its light shines. And so you don't have to necessarily answer that way. But if anybody asks you where you live this week, you know where you live. You live on a most amazing hill. Light, people of God. Let it shine. Let it keep things in balance. Done.